is Friday, January 12th, 2018. Time for episode 42 of the Barnhart Fastcast. It's only slightly tongue-in-cheek that we had a longer-than-typical time between podcasts, given that this week's episode is a topic about fasting. So, speaking about things to avoid, I find it really funny that we seem to get the most feedback when we discuss Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Which reminds me, Anne, did you break down and buy some Bitcoin yet? No, no, sure haven't, sure haven't. Um, just watching the watching the the hilarity of you know new news every day. What was the? I think I sent you a link. Something about South Korea has banned not banned cryptocurrencies, but banned mining crypto cryptocurrencies. What was it? They they were discussing banning the exchange of cryptocurrencies for the South Korean currency. Ah, so the, yes, the idea right. being that if if people were to use cryptocurrencies in South Korea, then don't bother trying to exchange it for was it yuan is what they have over there or won? Won. Yuan. Yuan is the Chinese. I think I think the Korean is just W O N won. Correct. The the the, the indigenous South Korean um, currency. Don't try to exchange cryptocurrency for that one. Uh, they're going to refuse it uh, or consider it illegal. I don't know what the, I don't know what the penalty is. Um, you're not supposed to they're, they're talking about outlawing it I, I, again i don't know what the penalty is but just on the news and, alone, and what, did, what did bitcoin do bitcoin prices drop 90 percent in in 90 seconds or something well, I, I don't know something. if it was 90 percent there, there 90%, was there was a discernible drop and then it it did a i don't know if it was a dead cat bounce or if it actually came back up but um it, i i remember when you sent me the link i looked up the the prices over on uh, Coinbase or whatever website it is, and and there was a discernible drop, and it was across all the cryptocurrencies. But um, it, it's the the news is that they haven't banned it yet; they're just talking about it. But this is yet another sign, something that can move that fast, just on a regulator saying we might want to regulate it or ban it. This isn't a store of value. This this is a highly speculative, um, not even a security, because I don't think securities move no. that fast just on on where, I mean, aside from Apple stuff, I mean, if, if Apple says we're going to build a new product based on some small company you'd never heard of, their technology, then that company might shoot through the roof all of a sudden. But uh, Apple tends to buy those companies before they make an announcement. But the, the point is, it's not a store of value. It's not a currency. Currency should be stable. Your store of value should be reliable. And something that goes up, you know, 20% or 100% in a day can fall that much just as fast. Exactly, so. exactly. As as we discussed, I believe, in episode 40, I think it was, um, you know, markets that have integrity just simply don't behave like that. Um, if, if a market gets too out of whack to the upside or to the downside, that attracts in speculative arbitrageurs who are going to be able to, you know, do some sort of a transaction to bring the market back into some sort of a reasonable equilibrium. And all of this, all of this hyper volatility that you're seeing um, with with Bitcoin and all these cryptocurrencies, that is a pure manifestation of the fact that these markets do not have that fundamental integrity that is is absolutely essential. It's it's you can't you can't have you can't pretend that this is going to be able to re- replace the dollar, the euro in Europe. I mean, and and goodness knows we're we're all fully aware of the problems, the massive, massive problems that exist with the U.S. dollar, that exist with all of these, you know, um, fiat currencies. Of course, but it's the solution to that isn't going to something that's several orders of magnitude more sketchy. You know, we need to be working back towards integrity, not just diving off the deep end into, 
you know, even less integrity. That's not the solution. And I think I might have told you the story in a just in a telephone call this week, super nerd, um, about and it tied directly to what I think we were also talking about in episode 40. I told the the anecdote about in 2000 at the top of the dot-com bubble that the UPS driver came into the commodity office and said, oh my gosh, you guys, you all you all need to be getting into this stock market and you need to be buying these these uh, dot-com um, stocks. Yeah, it goes to the shoeshine boy with J.P. Morgan. Exactly, exactly. And so as soon as he leaves and walks out the door, one of the other brokers that was in my office picked up the phone and called his his biggest um, equities trading client and said, um, I need to tell you what just happened. And, you know, the guy started getting that that was kind of the signal that you needed to start looking for a top buying puts, something like that, you know, and the, well, the only part of the story you didn't tell is how much did that client on the other end of the line? Cause he put some expensive, expensive bet on, on uh, futures. How much did he make on that? Or, or oh, I, is it I can't known? remember. And you know, the thing about picking tops and things like that is, is that in retrospect, you can look back at a chart of the high going in at the top of the dot com bubble. And then the whole thing collapsing. And you, you can look at that and you can say, well, good heavens, you'd have to be a, an imbecile to not make an absolute killing off of that. But that's the thing about um, spec trading markets is that it's a completely different animal in real time. Um, and sure, you might sell at or near the top, but the odds that you're going to hang on to that position and ride it all the way down no, it almost never happens, you know. People who who sell at or near top almost always take profits on the position, you know, way, 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 way early. That's just the nature of the beast, man. You can't you can't predict the future. And so when you're in real time, and that is a rule of good trading, is that you should you should be content to take a profit. Um, I, I would imagine so, there's there's probably if you can't leave emotion at the door and and base and, and base all your trades on on rationality, it, it's it's like playing cards. If you can't um, evaluate the, the the hand you have based on pure mathematics and your odds of winning. And you're getting emotional about how much you're betting in and you're going to just keep betting more and more because you can't stand to lose that much. You probably should be doing something else with your money. Oh, absolutely. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. But so what happened is that um, just a couple of days ago um, here in Riverville, too, um, not far from where I live, there's a nice little restaurant and, you know, I frequent this place from time to time. Very, very nice. Owned by some uh, kind of a nice family and go in there and, and sit down. And, you know, we've had some very mild conversations and they, they knew they don't know who I am, but they just very roughly know that I used to be in finance. I mean, that came up at one point when I was in there for dinner one night and just chatting with them. And so I go in, I sit down, look at the menu, place my order, and the waiter comes back and he, he says, you, you used to be in, in finance and all of that, right? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, well, can I ask you something? I said, sure. And he said, my family and I, we've, we've got this nest egg and we've kind of saved up. Do you think we should put that into Bitcoin? <laughs> I just I just chuckled to myself because this is kind of the UPS driver redux it seemed to me you know when when the the waiter at the restaurant is coming up to you and asking if he should plow his entire family's nest egg and life savings into bitcoin um I I'm I think that's that's some sort of a signal and of course I I without getting into 
excruciating detail because he still had to be working there in the restaurant. I kind of just mildly went over things with him and said, you know, there's nothing backing it. There's nothing behind it. Um, it's, it's, it's even less real than our paper money is. And, and, you know, you know, that our paper money is extremely problematic in terms of having anything behind it. And, oh yes, he kind of, he kind of understood that as a smart guy, you know, and then just kind of kept talking through and, and talking about the volatility. And they said, you know, it, it looks really enticing, the fact that it's going up so hard and so fast. But what that actually is, is that's a signal that this market is not healthy. It's not, it's not legitimate because if it were legitimate, there'd be all kinds of liquidity and people would be coming in and there wouldn't be these huge spikes up and down. He said, oh yeah, that makes sense. That makes absolute sense. And then the, the last thing I hit him with is, you could buy Bitcoin all day long. They'll take your money all day long. The problem is, is what happens if you want to get out and you want to convert it back into our currency? And he, he really, he didn't really have much of an understanding of how illiquid it was on the other side of the transaction, of how difficult it is to move, especially any significant amount of money out of a cryptocurrency and back into um, something that you can, you know, actually use to pay your bills or pay off your mortgage or whatever. So I, I just thought it was really funny that after we had had that conversation and told the story about the UPS driver, that something very similar, a very similar dynamic happened just, just a few days ago. It, it's an evergreen question. And, you know, it, I, we get emails, probably more emails on, on, on the uh, cryptocurrency discussions than anything else. I think we're probably going to have to do another uh, episode or two on, on the topic in general and not just Bitcoin because yeah. there's a lot of them and there, there, there are a lot of cryptocurrencies and, and some of them are making their big their big play on the fact that the the, the blockchain technology and some of the other things um, it, it's it's a discussion to go into another day but one of the things you mentioned that there's nothing backing uh, Bitcoin you know you know the, the question of what backs the US dollar well if you were able to ask Saddam Hussein uh, you could he would, yeah. he, he would tell you yep. that the US military backs the the the, the US dollar uh, yep. to the point that uh, one, one of the popular theories is that he wanted to uh, decouple the Iran the Iraqi oil trade from the US dollar and start selling oil in euros and uh, okay we're getting into conspiracy theory land here with this but the point is that uh, there there were two known um, let's say people who can control their countries who said that we were going to stop selling oil in terms of us dollars. And one of them was euros. That was uh, Hussein. And mm -hmm. one of them was Gaddafi. He said he was going to, he wanted to create some new, uh, he wanted gold, to create his own. Yeah. yeah gold yeah. dinars. It was going to be gold backed dinars. He was going to re relaunch that. And neither one of them are still around. Coincidence. Maybe, uh, maybe not. Um, who else yeah. is, who else is um, clamoring loudly to decouple the, the dollar from, from oil. Um, and, and on the topic of uh, potential body counts, uh, there's some news with Huma Abedin. Yes, I was I was shocked, shocked, I tell you, to see that Huma Abedin has dropped civil divorce proceedings from her husband, Anthony Weiner, who is, as we speak, sitting in a federal prison somewhere for sending dirty, nasty messages to little girls on Twitter or whatever. 
okay. And I just, I saw this and people were just like, well, I hope they work it out. I'm like, what? Okay. There's one reason. There is exactly one reason why Huma Abedin has dropped divorce proceedings against Anthony Weiner. And that reason is, is that in the United States of America, spouses cannot be compelled to testify against each other in court. And Miss Huma is up to her hairy little eyebrows in in all kinds of felonious activity with regards to Hillary Clinton's emails and just taking copying and pasting entire massive PNG, I assume they're PNG files, filled with classified documents and all kinds of top secret stuff. And, you know, just copying and pasting them onto her pervert husband's porn laptop. I mean, the, uh, Huma Abedin. It was, it was if, the shared if it was marital a, laptop, apparently. The shared marital laptop. Oh, that's gross. <laughs> that's really gross. I didn't mean it to sound um, that way. He's just, you know. Yeah, it's just. Okay, never mind. It's, it's, a, it's a function of the culture. Um, and so, um, yeah, the, that whole thing happened. And I saw that on Drudge and people being kind of mystified about this. Like, oh, come on, you guys. I mean, we, we covered this before. Huma Abedin married um, Anthony Weiner. He was a double beard. Okay, so Huma Abedin is um, Hillary Clinton's lesbian concubine. Oh, and don't has forget been, who officiated at the wedding. Ben Bill Clinton officiated at the wedding. Yes, he That's did. right. That's right. So she's she's Hillary Clinton's lesbian concubine. So Anthony Weiner was a beard in in the traditional sense of the of the slang term, which means when a sex pervert um, who's engaging in sexually perverted acts or just per- perverted sodomitical acts with someone of the same sex. Um, when they go out and they try to find an opposite sex person to to enter into a fake marriage with, um, to cover the fact that they are sex perverts, and especially for for Huma Abedin, this was very big because she her parents um, were and are and continue to be, and Huma Abedin was herself extraordinarily active, you know, they were the, one of the main leadership families in the Muslim Brotherhood for years and years and years. And I think the mother still is. I think the mother is still involved or the head of the women's auxiliary, for lack of a better term, of the Muslim Brotherhood. And Huma herself worked as the editor of the Muslim Brotherhood's uh, newsletter, magazine, whatever you would call it for years and years. So, you know, if you're going to be, you know, m- this princess of the musloid terrorist milieu, um, you know, being known to be an open lesbian is not going to fly. The men are all sodomites and that's, that's different, but you know, the women, it's obviously not acceptable, um, to them for women to be, to be sodomites like that. And then the other thing, the other aspect of the beard dynamic with Anthony Weiner is that, okay, as we just covered, Huma Abedin is just, you know, on both sides of her family, her DNA is a 110% Muslim Brotherhood, and she worked herself in the Muslim Brotherhood for years and years and years. So she's up to her eyeballs in the Islamic political system and all of that. What dynamic does Anthony Weiner also provide cover in terms of, well, he's the world's biggest and most repulsive Jew, right? I mean, Anthony Weiner embodies Every negative stereotype, just and unjust, about Jews. He is the world's biggest, most repulsive Jew. 
Um, and so what she does is she, you know, quote unquote, marries him. She marries him. And now if anybody and has a, has a child with him, pray for that little boy. Good grief. That poor kid. Um, she marries him. She has a kid with him. So now if anybody comes to her and says, hey, wait a minute, look at all this stuff. You're up to your eyebrows in the Muslim Brotherhood. You're like involved in this terrorist organization. She can point and say, look who I'm married to. I'm I'm married to the world's biggest Jew. I'm, I'm not anti-Semitic. One of my, one I'm of my not, closest I'm not partners is anti-Semitic. Exactly. Exactly. So there's this double beard dynamic. Now <laughs> she's stuck. She's stuck because when she started copying all of this highly classified and top secret stuff onto the shared marital laptop, she now drags him in to all of this into her own felonious criminal activity. Now she has to stay married to them to him so that the government cannot compel him to testify against her. And boy, oh boy, one, one would have to really think that Anthony could, uh, could really drop a load on, on Miss Huma. So now she's, she can't even civilly divorce him now. But I, I, had, I, mean, I had heard that there were some things lined up to, for uh, Wiener to get prosecuted for things that were going to put him in jail for life or worse. And he did this whole sexting thing or whatever it was from the laptop so that he could get caught so that it could that laptop could be taken by the FBI and they could see what was on it and then he was going to make his deal based on that now I don't uh, know that if that was complete crackpot or, or or not but considering he, he would not have been in the dark what all was on that laptop he may not have been able to decrypt it but I mean, th again, Huma was, it just came out recently. She was sending the passwords for sensitive State Department things to her Yahoo email account so she yeah. could access things more easily. Well, okay, the reason why these things are hard to access is because they are state secrets, literally. You're not mm -hmm. supposed to be sending it. And, and this was right before Yahoo got hacked, too. So, you know, there, if you want to talk about Russian involvement with the United States, that might be an angle to investigate. There are a lot more connections between the Clinton camp and Russia, I don't know, about uranium and, and other yep. things. Um, so if you want to start really, you know, <laughs> digging up trouble with the Russians, it's, it's not with, it's not with the current uh, occupant of the white house. It's, it's the, uh, the pre the previous, uh, people who were in there. That's, that's no doubt. And, you know, don't be fooled, be fooled by anything about, Oh, Huma and Anthony are trying to work it out. No, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Plea agreements is what they're trying to work out. <laughs> Anthony Weiner either needs to be legally married to Huma Abedin or dead. I mean, if, if seriously, if I were Anthony Weiner, I'd be, and I'm in prison, I would be scared poopless. I would be scared poopless that the, the Clintons were putting out a contract on me because you know, it, it has to be one or the other. He can't be civilly divorced from her and thus able to be compelled to testify. So, oh man, but you know, it couldn't have happened. It couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Maybe that's unchristian <laughs> and not nice to say, but what, what a sleaze bag. I was what just going to say, an absolute scumbag. It's not an man. enviable position to say the least. I mean, I, I would have worded it a little bit differently than you did, but yeah, it's definitely, def I wouldn't want to trade spots with them in, in any way, shape or form. Yep. Not at all. Yep. So there, that's my little Huma Abedin um, rant. There you speaking go. Speaking about people who wield um, power in the white house, somebody just made a reference to latrine cratered countries. Um, <laughs> I'm, I've been I've been laughing all day, and I think as soon as we're done recording this, that I'm going to make just a little independent, um, small post on this. 
And I've been laughing all day because I have the song, uh, the Barbara Mandrell song from like 83. I was country when country wasn't cool. Except in my mind, the lyrics are, I was saying shithole when saying shithole wasn't cool. Because in 2000 and I don't think 12, like May of 2012, something like that, I gave a talk in Colorado Springs to kind of this quasi tea party group. Um, and there's a video of it online. It's, it's pretty epic. It's, I, I, I haven't, I haven't looked in that video at that video in a long time. And I, and I went back and looked it up and looked up the exact line. And it was, I have to say, uh, even, even it, though it's, I was watching myself, I was, I was kind of, uh, blown away by the, just the ferocity of the whole thing. But one of the point, one of the points that I made was about Muslims, Musloids, and how the only solution to this is that these people have to be rounded up and deported. I mean, that's short of, short of fighting a massive, massive, massive war, which that's probably where it's going to go. Um, the, the, the only other feasible solution is to round people up, inter them, and then ship them back. And I, I, I said I, that I used exactly that word. And, you know, I'm going off. You know, I've got a head of steam going. And I say, and you, and you send those people back to whatever shithole they came from. So I've been laughing all day that Trump must be watching my, he must be watching my old uh, Tea Party lecture videos. And uh, he's totally copying me because I was saying shithole when shithole wasn't cool. So. I, I don't think he's watching your videos because if he was, he was <laughs> imitating it, I think he'd be making a little bit more sense. One of the, one, one of the, one of the things <laughs> I was, li- one of the things I was listening to, and I know some of the people who hate Jews are going to you know, go la la la. I don't want to hear this anymore. When I mentioned Ben Shapiro's podcast yet again, but he was making the, the point that, that the left just is, is not only is just in such rabid hatred of the president, but they don't even know how to score points in registering the hatred. So he makes, he makes reference to, uh, we don't want immigrants from certain asshole countries. Um, Okay, if you look at it just on the point of wanting to exclude people based on the country from which they came, you could say this is textbook bigotry. And maybe you could even make the case for um, for for racism because he had made a comment at one point in time that no no judge of Mexican descent could could um, hear his case fairly if he was brought up in court. So rather than actually sticking to the facts you can prove based on what he said, they are just going, you know, completely saying he's mentally unstable. He, he, he should be deposed under the 25th Amendment. And just going completely off the rails that that direction, and and, and it, it, it cracks me up because the first thought that went through my mind, and then I saw it on other places as people on on the right were discussing all this. I mean, the the, the left couldn't pick a worse um, example because I think it, what he said it in the context of was Haiti. Okay, Haiti is in fact a literal shithole. I mean, there's there's no functioning sewers. People defecate in the streets. People are dying of cholera. The Clintons have been have been inserted into Haiti since the massive earthquake. Haiti has not been rebuilt at all. The Clinton machine is there just sucking money. And presumably also the the other thing that goes on in Haiti, and this is really serious and this is hardcore, is that all of these pedophiles that are in like the United Nations and all of these other charitable organizations, these charitable organizations are hotbeds for pedophiles because what the pedophiles do is they get themselves sent into these third world countries countries like Haiti, like sub-Saharan Africa, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just 
child rape and child sex slavery all day long. I mean, that's, they're just there. There's no rule of law. Um, there's nobody really to stop them and they can just, they can just have as much child sex basically as they want. And then they can do what they want with the kids after they can kill them. And a lot of these kids are orphans. Nobody would ever miss them. I mean, it's, it's really an evil satanic dynamic. Let's and just so, let's just say Jeffrey Epstein loves um, Haiti. Yeah, exactly, exactly. With the what was that? What did they call his private jet? The Lolita Express. The Lolita Express. The the Lolita Express. Exactly. That's right up their alley. And so yeah, you've got Haiti, and you say and Trump. I, I think it's a case of. I don't think Trump is this master genius and I don't think he's playing all this. I just think that um, the left is just so far gone that, I mean, anybody can go up against the left at this point. And it's such, they're so irrational that they make everyone else look like a tactical genius. Um, oh, it, it so, is absolutely hilarious that, you know, you have a president like Trump who makes George W. Bush look like a Rhodes scholar. And, but yet the things that he says causes the left to foment and do such illogical things. It's the, just the disconnect. It's like, did logic just walk away in 2000 and never come back? It, it's, it's weird. Yeah, I think it did. I think it did. And, um, so Haiti, Trump says Haiti's a shithole or whatever it is that he said. Anyone who has two brain cells to rub together is going to hear him say that and say, damn right, finally somebody's saying this. And this can be said about all kinds of places all over the world. Almost the entirety of Africa, by definition, is a shithole. You couldn't pay me to go to Africa. No, no interest whatsoever. Sorry, sorry, but it's it's a shithole, and I don't want to go there. Um, huge swaths of Asia complete and total shithole. Bangladesh is a total shithole on and on and on. And finally, you know, Trump says something like this and, and it's true. And every, and everybody's so starved for truth that he says it. And everybody's just like, right on. Finally, somebody's saying this because it's true. Well, it was off record behind closed doors. It was something that was supposed to be, um, not leaked to the media, but uh, that this is what happens when a Republican president decides to trust um, a, a, a bipartisan group to have uh, a closed conversation. They go leak it to the press. So I figure. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, and, you know, nobody's nobody with two brain cells to rub together is going to hold is going to hold it against him. Um, that's that's not saying that Haiti is a shithole is not an intrinsically offensive thing to say because Haiti is a shithole. And. And let's look at the Clintons um, first and foremost. I mean, obviously, there was a terrible earthquake there. Um, I don't when was it? It's been almost 10 years ago now. It was early in the Obama regime. I remember that. And uh, be because George W. Bush didn't even have his foundation set up. And I remember he and uh, Clinton making a joint. Um, yes, a joint I remember press that. Yeah. People want to send water. They want to send blankets. Just send your cash. I will find that on YouTube and I will put it in the show notes. Just send your cash. And all that yep. money literally in the billions went to the William J. Clinton Foundation. Nation. And I think yep. a couple of maybe tens of millions got allocated to the Red Cross and maybe four or five dollars actually of aid got to the Haitians. Okay, maybe 40 or 50. But the point yeah. being that Literally, and the rest paid for Chelsea's wedding. Yep. Nine figures worth of money, maybe it was 10, was raised for Haiti. And yep. maybe at most $20 million actually in aid got to the Haitians. 
Which you is know, basically nothing. And by it's the way, the, basically Clinton, nothing. the Clinton Foundation, uh, try pulling their Form 990s. You can't get them. Mm. Shock. I'm shocked. I'm <laughs> stunned. <laughs> yep. Form 990, by the way, for people who are not IRS junkies or um, uh, tax accountants like our friend in, in uh, Dallas, um, they, the, these are the, the forms that uh, tax-exempt organizations are supposed to file at least by October of the year following the previous financial year. And uh, for some reason, the Clinton Foundation gets away with um, just not filing it. I don't know how that works. Um, Isn't that strange? It's it's almost like there's one set of rules that apply to them and a different, completely, totally different set of rules and consequences that apply to almost everyone else. Isn't that strange? I I mean, I know that can't be right. I've heard somebody make make a a discussion about people who believe the rules don't apply to them. What's that word? Um, Oh, narcissism. Yeah. Narcissism. Yes. Yes. I, yes. <laughs> uh, okay. So, we, we've been abstaining from the main topic long enough, which actually is the point. Um, fasting. Uh, we, we mentioned in a previous podcast, um, I don't even know how this came up, but just the, the, the health benefits of fasting and intermittent fasting. And um, I, you, you brought it up. You, you go ahead and develop it. Well, I mean, the thing that I love always is when science sciencey stuff or hardcore science confirms um, churchy stuff, whether it's archaeological or, you know, um, what would you call it? Astrological, cosmological stuff up in the galaxies and the universe and all of that. And also when it comes to health and so forth. And this is one that's just exploding is this whole notion that just about one of the healthiest things you can do for your body is um, fasting. Well, imagine that, you know, the church has been saying fasting is one of the essential activities of of the Christian life, you know, and our uh, John the Baptist, obviously, and our Lord, obviously, set the example. Um, And so what they're finding out and the the cool sciencey thing that's just now emerging is what they're figuring out is that I think it's only 18 hours, which to me now seems like nothing because I do, even on days that I eat, I, I only eat one meal a day. So I'm, I'm doing a 24-hour fast effectively because if I eat at roughly the same time every day, that means you're, you know, how long does it take you to eat? It, at most, it takes you about an hour to eat. So it that means you're what doing, you're eating. well, it depends on what you're eating, but um, like <laughs> on those occasions when I treat myself to the all you can eat sushi place, uh, which is actually one of the cheapest meals going that there is, <laughs> you know, I can, I can, I can take in calories. I don't even know how many calories it is that I take in and be completely, totally done, eat the entire meal in like 20 minutes. You know, if, if I'm by myself, obviously, and I'm not talking, I'm just sitting there eating, you know. Um, so and then a more a more normal kind of a sit down dinner, you know, it's it takes an hour. Let's say it takes an hour. OK, you're looking at a 23 hour fast then every day. I think they're, the science is finding out and figuring out that it's only 18 hours that your bo- your body starts kicking in. And I think the term that they use for it is autophagy, A-U-T-O-P-H-A-G-Y. And what that is, apparently your immune system and your, you know, your white blood cells and all that kick, kick into this like overdrive. And they, um, they go throughout your body and 
I don't know if, if the listeners out there are aware of this, but in terms of cancer, all cancer is is cells that have divided and in the in the division the the offspring cell had a mutation in it and it's all wonky and messed up and so the white blood cells that are in your body all the time are constantly seeking out and finding these just kind of naturally randomly occurring basically cancer cells um these malformed mutated cells that have just happened because I think you have over a trillion cells in your body. So it stands to reason that as normal cell division goes every once in a while, one's going to be messed up. And so your white blood blood cells go and kill it. Well, um, and so you always have quote unquote cancer in your body. Everyone always has cancer. The, the issue is though, is is, is your immune system able to stay on top of it? And for most people, for most of their lives, the answer is yes. Your immune system takes care of all that and wonky cells are killed and it's all good. When you get cancer with a capital C is when um, your immune system, for whatever reason, isn't able to handle it. And those cancer cells then start dividing and dividing and dividing. And of course, that's an exp- exponential progression. And the next thing you know, you have a tumor or whatever. Um, so what happens when you fast is that your white blood cells kick into like super hyper overdrive autophagy and start going throughout your body and just super cleansing. And again, that's, that's kind of a trendy buzzword that, that's kind of become almost a quack kind of a term. Oh, I'm going to do a cleanse. I'm going to, well, this is, this is actually scientific, serious instance of your body cleansing itself and it only kicks in this autophagy hypergear only kicks in when you fast and so they're figuring out that if you can do 24 36 even a 40 or 48 hour fast that if you can do that once or even twice a week which is kind of almost the monastic sort of a sort of a rule i mean the fasting days of the church are Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. Um, and so that's all been kind of built into the to the the rhythm and the calendar of the church, all of this fasting going on. Um, it's a way for it's a way that to protect your body and to be healthy. Um, you know, not just your body, but your mind too. I mean the, it, it, the, the spirit and the body go together. And you know, there's the, the classic Latin phrase, mensana incorpore sano, sound mind and a sound body. This is why, you know, it's, it's to your spiritual benefit to work out and lift weights and be fit because the physical part of the body affects the mental part of the body. And anybody who does essentially mental work like accountants or programmers or something like this know this already. When you are physically fit, when you're physically active, your mind can focus and, and do more concentrated work. And I, I will say in, in terms of, of fasting – um, a couple of years ago, I went on on. Um, it wasn't a straight out fast per se, but it, it's it's a type of diet called a ketogenic diet. And go ask your doctor about this before you do it. Um, but I went from the high two nineties to the low two twenties uh, within seven months on wow. this. Wow, and That's and uh, one of the things I noticed, in, in the, they you do need to know about this beforehand. Uh, and if you if you if you talk to your doctor and you want to know more about this, go ahead and email me podcast at barnhart.biz. Uh, one of the things I was glad I knew about beforehand, or else I probably would have quit a week in, was something called the keto flu you get. But th- there are some different phases you go through. But your your body, you know, when, when you uh, wean yourself off of carbs, for example, 
um, your body will go through some different phases. But one of the things I noticed after about two weeks was the, the amount of mental clarity uh, mm-hmm. and the ability to focus at two, three, four in the afternoon. It was like I just had five cups of coffee, but I didn't have any jitters. I was just wide awake all day long. And I could, I could uh, have, um, you know, what, what, I, what they call the keto coffee or whatever in the morning. So it's coffee with, with um, uh, either, you know, coconut oil usually or something like that. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. You, you don't eat until six, seven at night. And even then it was more, oh, I probably should have a little bit of something. Otherwise I might get hungry. Um, but yeah, there, there are all these, these things that kick in. Um, the biggest one. So you, me, you were in ketosis, right? Because um, I've done, I've Atkins. I've, I've gone on Atkins and done that to where I was in ketosis. And it's absolutely true that your mind is sharper. And the reason it's sharper is because your your body is not burning glucose, it's burning ketones. And apparently your brain just goes like, like crazy when it's burning ketones instead of glucose. Yes, and the, so you really do feel that that mental acuity spike, definitely. The body runs better on ketones, yes. And if, if you are somebody who is um, possibly diabetic, again, ask your doctor before you do this. I mean, this you know, don't, t- don't take health advice from a super nerd. I, I, I can tell you about computers, but uh, talk to a doctor first. But um, the, the whole point is that, yes, when, when you, um, I don't know if it was ketosis per se, um, that sounds right. But um, you mentioned the, the the Atkins thing. Atkins, is, as I understand it now, is is um, the whole Atkins diet is high carbs and nothing else. And if you no, actually no, At- Atkins is zero carbs. It's you're eating protein and fat exclusively. You're right. I said I said yeah. it wrong. It was high yeah. protein and nothing else. The last time I, I talked to somebody and who fat. Was, well, no bacon, 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 no, bacon. No. Well, bacon, <laughs> yes, is an example. But a lot of the people who are into uh, the Atkins diet these days, they think it's all protein and nothing else. And actually, the ketogenic diet, they call it high fat, low carb, or zero carb, and moderate protein only. Mm-hmm. Um, only a little bit of protein, just enough to maintain the muscles and whatnot. But the fat is the real thing that, that you that you switch over to. That's what powers the body. And eventually, once you switch over to the, to burning fat, you take even the fat out. And you just you know, if you are somebody who has um, a generous excess of fat in your body, once you switch over to burning fat and you stop taking fat in through your diet, hey, guess what? There's a lot of it in your body that it can use it, and you can shed pounds fast. Mm-hmm. Um, again, talk to your doctor because this, this isn't for everybody. And and there can be some some definite uh, health um, things if you, if you're not if you're not if, if you've got conditions you know it, it's not for everybody there there is no one one size fits all diet but the point um, going back even a few years before that uh, the beginning of Lent one year I uh, decided for uh, Ash Wednesday to just go on a full fast for for Ash Wednesday by itself uh, going into Thursday morning even though I had a you know the the typical half meal I realized my mental focus was about three times more than usual. And so the mm-hmm. point being is that that um, when you look at the monastic diets, you don't eat to satiation; you eat to the point of of survival, basically, or maybe a little bit more. I mean, you you are not satiating yourself; you're eating enough to 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 keep your body sustained. And you you don't you know you eat before you are full, or you I'm sorry, you you stop eating before you're full. So if you still think you could eat more before you feel full, that's a good time to stop. I mean, honestly, if you're going to starve to death, you'll know it. Uh, weeks yeah, in advance. Yeah, I don't think any American today is at any risk of starving to death. I mean, you you have to already be extraordinarily sick to be at risk of any sort of starvation. And it, I think it also just speaks to the whole, especially with Americans, is that we're just so used to having anything we want, like right now, and and sati- and sati- satiation, you know, 
always being satiated and feeling that if we're not satiated, that we're deprived somehow, you know, and some horrible thing is happening if we're if we're not fully, completely, totally satiated. And we don't just do this with food. We do this with um, all kinds of things, you know, because because we have access to so much. There's an example in my life that I kind of caught myself that where I am now in Riverville too, my favorite toothpaste is not available here. I just can't find it for whatever reason. I don't know. It's just, it's just not here. And so, um, there was someone coming to visit and they were coming from, um, an area. And I said, can you check and see, can you go to the store or the drugstore, and can you see if they have this certain brand of toothpaste? Because it's my absolute favorite. The organic fair trade, um, toothpaste you like? No, it's the extra strong. <laughs> it's the extra super duper nuclear powered. Um, but once you start using the, the, the nuclear powered toothpaste, it's weird because when you go back to like Crest or something regular, it feels like you're brushing your teeth with Crisco. So <laughs> it's kind of gross. So there's a I reason just ask, for that. Say again. <laughs> there's a reason for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I asked, can you go to the store? And if, if you can, if you'd bring me when you come to visit, if you'd bring me a couple of tubes of this nuclear toothpaste. And sure enough, they did. And I just realized, you know, just feeling, feeling deprived because I don't have my, my own certain special brand of toothpaste. I mean, we just have anything we want all the time. And the whole notion of if you do, if you start doing fasting and, and what I'm talking about is, is fasting. That is, you don't eat anything. It's not like you're Atkinsing. And when I was at, or, or, um, what do you call yours? Caveman or ketogenic? Ketogenic. Usually with those, they, they tell you that it's, it's okay to go ahead and graze and have a little snack and have a piece of bacon and, you know, blah, blah, blah. What we're talking about is fasting where you do not eat anything, nothing, um, and it, you have to be careful because in the context of the church, the, the rules for fasting are, are not zero food intake. I mean, to me, when I look, especially at what the Novus Ordo rules for fasting are, I mean, I, it's, it's three meals in a day. What is it? It's one meal and then two other meals that have to be smaller than, than the one meal. I haven't eaten three meals in one day in a very long time. And if I did eat three meals in one day, I would feel like an absolute pig. I, would, I mean, I, I, to do a Novus Ordo fast for me would be just gorging. It would be absolutely gorging. And so that's just another thing about the Novus Ordo. I mean, they just watered everything down until it's just completely meaningless. I mean, that the fasting in terms of, you know, fasting on on Fridays and so forth. It's just, come on. There's just almost nothing to it. The Eucharistic fast, reducing it from, um, it used to be midnight. You, you couldn't eat from midnight if you were going to receive uh, Holy Communion that on, before, you know, the day. That was before day. 1955, though. Yeah. And then, then they went to three hours. Okay. And, th and now it's one hour. I mean, that, that doesn't even mean anything. So wh what you're telling me that I can go and I can eat like a McDonald's Big Mac value meal as long as I do it 61 minutes before I receive Holy Communion. The whole point is that, you know, you're taking our Lord into your body and you don't want the host to be 
plopping down into your stomach. This is this is kind of gross, but if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. You don't want the host to be plopping down into your stomach, into you know this mess of of McDonald's or whatever. You know. Well, we used um, the term shithole earlier. This is this is a spiritual and physical combination to think about too. And, and this is this is a great meditation of of why is Mary special for for the people who aren't Catholics and who call themselves Christian. What makes Mary special is that she is um, immaculate, free from free from any defect, free from any sin. God cannot be where there is impurity, and this mm-hmm. is why for the Catholics now, when this is why we should be fasting. There is impurity in your body. You're going to be receiving God into your body. Why are you going to have garbage in your system? Yes, I mean, and do we believe in the real presence or not? You know, and. You might think, oh, Anne, that's that's so silly, and God is God, and he's a big boy, and he can take care of himself, but he's also our Eucharistic Lord who has come to us in in under the appearance of bread, and we get to take him into our body, and he goes down our esophagus, and he sits in our, in our stomach right next to and underneath our heart, right in there. And, you know, he's he's there for the church says it's obviously nobody knows, but it's the church says, let's call it 15 minutes that the our Eucharistic Lord is inside your body, down in your tummy and inside of your body and particles of him are presumably even starting to be absorbed into your bloodstream and so on and so forth. Do do we really believe in the real presence or not? And if you do, why do you want him plopping down into your nasty full stomach that's it's just it's inconsiderate i mean it's 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 quite inconsiderate so ideally you should be fasting um and i've worked it out so now most days i'm i'm able to do this that i'm fasting from midnight and then i eat after i go to mass and it works out absolutely beautifully so um that's kind of what we're talking about and and finding out and seeing all of this um, scientific discovery about how fasting is is really good for our bodies and um, helps people stay healthy and combats p- the potential development of cancer and so forth. I mean, that just confirms, it's just another scientific confirmation of the wisdom of all of these things. And what's cool about it, what I've always thought is cool, is that these are things that people in antiquity obviously could have had no idea about. You know, they couldn't... Yes and they no. Had, go ahead. Well, I was going to say yes and no. I mean, they, they certainly understood things. I mean, St. Paul writes in, in um, his letter to the Corinthians, see, I'm a Catholic and I know the Bible, uh, that, <laughs> that he chastises his body and brings it into subjection, lest perhaps he should be damned. And so there was the whole idea that, yes, the to achieve a certain goal, you have to be able to abstain from the irrelevancies of, of other things. And I, I knew you were going to go in, in a large sense into the physical aspects of fasting. And one of the things I would, def- I definitely wanted, wanted to bring up in this was the spiritual aspects of it mm-hmm. and not just food fasting. Um, yeah, in, in our modern society with our smartphones or which make us dumber and, and TV and internet and all the rest, an aspect of fasting that we might not consider is the information intake, uh, mm. whether it's through our eyes, through our ears, uh, through the radio on your commute, you know, how many, how many of us really value silence? Yep. Not reading things, not reading drudge or the news. I mean, if, if you decide to not read the news or follow, follow the, uh, the radio or anything else, I guarantee you're not going to miss a war. I mean, everything totally important. Um, yeah. Read spiritual reading. 
the more you, you, you consume all this fascination with the world, which admittedly we talk about it a lot, but the more you, 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 you concentrate on the rest of the world and, and, and flood your senses with all of this extraneous stuff, the less you are making yourself open to be able to hear the movement of God in your soul. And that's one of the other benefits of fasting. Yes, it sharpens the, the fasting of the body, sharpens the mental acuity, the faculties of the soul. If you combine that with also curbing your, your curiosity about all the extraneous things that don't really matter, the, the synergy of those two means that you are going to be more attuned to hear God and what it is he's trying to say to you. I'm sure exactly. you've ever, ha- I'm sure you've, everyone listening has had the experience, maybe it's happening right now, because if you're hearing something in your ear is drowning out, somebody's talking to you, you're not going to hear somebody a little further away talking to you in a softer voice. Mm-hmm. Or if, if, you know, somebody in the room is talking to you and you've got headphones on, you're not hearing them because you're hearing my voice right now. So stop. We'll be here when you get back, listen to them and go forward. But the same thing happens with God. He's not going to shout at you. Ultimately, we go to heaven or we go to hell based on our own choice. Whether or not we want to hear what God has to say to us and and conform our lives, our souls, our wills to him or not. And so these things about fasting, yes, awesome for the body. Uh, You shed uh, fat. You get get an awesome physique. Um, but it also sh- uh, sharpens the the mind as well. It sharpens the ability to concentrate. It sharpens the ability to have union with God. And that's why we were created. Exactly. So I highly recommend it. We've been, as everybody remembers, because I think we mentioned this in at the end of every podcast, the Matthew 17, 20 intention. Um I've gotten to where I'm now doing two full fast days a week. And, you know, guys, it's just, it's not that difficult. When you first start, if you're a person, certainly, who's used to eating three meals a day or four, like a typical American, sure, when you first start doing something like that, it's going to... It's going to hurt, you know, your tummy's going to be rumbling and all that. But I'm telling you, you get used to it. The other thing that bears mentioning is that as you get older, and I think that there are quite a few younger people um, who listen to this podcast. I mean, obviously, our, our demographic skews older, but I think there's quite a few young people out there listening too. hear me now and believe me later. At some point in your 30s, you know, generally for most people, it's around 35, between 35 and 40 your metabolism is going to grind to a screeching halt. And you're just, especially the ladies. I was going to say, it might might be more more abrupt for the ladies. For me, it was a little more gradual, but it definitely happened during the 30s, yes. Yeah, I mean, it just grinds to a halt. I used to, when I was in my 20s, I used to eat four meals a day. And like, you know, decadent American, not fat, some fast food, but also just decadent American, like, barbecue and steak and I would eat four meals a day um, and just nothing would happen, you know, and then you get to a point in your 30s and it just stops and you just don't need even remotely as much food as as much caloric intake as you I don't I wouldn't say that you needed it when you were in your teens and 20s, but your body was just able to burn it very, very easily. The ability to burn calories, just the, the, the curve just drops off and it drops off very sharply and very quickly. So you, you have to be careful and you have to, you do have to be conscious of this. And I think it's very important for women to 
curb their caloric intake. And this is a way to do it. I mean, you're getting all these benefits of it. You're getting the spiritual benefit. You're getting the autophagy benefit. So it's, it's, it's potentially um, hunting down and killing something that maybe could have developed into cancer. So you have all of that benefit going on. And, you know, you're, you're dropping your caloric intake and you're not putting all of this weight on that modern American women, especially, I mean, American men are fat too, but modern American women are really bad about, you know, hitting, hitting middle age and just blowing up like balloons. And this is another thing that you can do to keep, keep yourself in, in conformity with the reality of what's happening with your body as it ages and your metabolism. You can't keep eating when you're in your 40s and 50s the way you did when you were in your 20s. You just can't. And this is a way. I mean, think about that. If you just cut out two-sevenths, two days out of seven, so two-sevenths, if you just cut those calories out, that, would, that goes a tremendous long way, if not all the way, of correcting any m- metabolic deficiency you might have as a consequence of hitting middle age. And then you're not going to get fat, and then you're not going to get diabetes, and then you're not going to get cancer, potentially, and on and on and on. And also, let it also just be said, you're not going to be fat. That That has a tremendous value in and of itself. It's not good to be fat, and the more fit you are, the more able you are to render charity to your neighbors. That's right. That's right. And the more energy you will have, you'll be you'll say, yeah, I am going to go to daily mass or yeah, I am going to go make a holy hour. Or, yes, I'm going to do this. Yes, I'm going to do that. Yeah, yeah, I do have the energy to stay up and say another uh, set of mysteries of the rosary or whatever it is. You've you've got the energy. You're not just one of these American beached whales that we see. And it's just... I don't know the percentages of obesity and I know that sometimes that they have these charts and so forth and there are people who are classified as obese who clearly aren't they're just people who are built you know not to be not skinny there are people who come out of the womb that are not skinny and are never going to be skinny unless they're put in a concentration camp or, or have atypical body ratios I mean if you happen to be a 6'5 but only have 31 inch legs I mean that that's different. Yeah, I mean, with within reason, but it's just obvious that the the percentage of of Americans, especially, that are just basically giving up, <laughs> just giving up and and putting on this weight and don't care and don't care about their appearance and so forth. And again, this is this is a fine line, um, but as we've talked about before, in terms of aesthetics and beauty and all of that, it's beauty is a constitutive quality of God. And so it isn't something to be to be despised or to be indifferent indifferent towards. You should want your body to not be repulsive and fat. And that and that isn't a, just a, a modern aesthetic. A person who is not obese and doesn't have enormous amounts of of fat around their midsection and so forth. That is not just a cultural aesthetic. That is, that is an objective aesthetic. It is not right for a person to be to be fat and ugly like that. And um, 
it's not wrong for a person to want to be healthy and to not be obese. That, that There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't make you some sort of a horrific narcissist, not at all. Now, can, it, can you go off into the ditch on the other side? Well, of course you can. Of course you can. We've all seen people who are anorexic joggers, and those people generally have some sort of obsessive compulsive disorder going on. We're just talking about normal people just, you know, Keeping, keeping in some sort of modicum of, of fitness and shape, again, so that you can be um, better equipped for your spiritual life to, to give charity to others and so on and so forth. I mean, it's, it's just common sense, it seems to me. Well, and you also have to do this in phases, too. I mean, if you're somebody who has not been denying your, your, um, your appetites for good food or for entertainment or podcasts other than this one, um, go do, you know, cut back, cut back gradually. I mean, you know, if, if you tend to eat six meals a day, cut back to five and then next week, cut back to four. I mean, do it, do it in phases. Eventually mm-hmm. you can reach, I mean, if, if you try to go from whatever you're doing now to, you know, the Auschwitz diet, you will not make it three days. And what will happen as a result and Satan loves this, he loves to tempt you to overdo it. Um, mm-hmm. w- whenever you've got a plan for piety, he's got another plan for piety, which is twice as rigorous and it's designed to make you fail and convince you that you cannot do it. Therefore you'll never try again. And yeah. that's, that's, you know, I, I don't know if it was because of the way I reworded your, your Matthew 17, 20 initiative one, one time, uh, of, of, to do some fasting as opposed to full fasting. That's why I, I phrased it that way. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. not everybody has to go to 11 on this one. If you can do it more power to you. But yeah, the, if, the and five meals a week thing. I mean, you you have to you have to work into that. And I've been doing that. And the, the thing that's weird is that I fell into a one meal a day paradigm. I fell into a two meal a day paradigm. Um, boy, it's been probably almost ten years ago now. Eat at ten in the morning and four in the afternoon, and you're done. And then. Um, as I got into my later thirties and it just, you know, situation in life obviously changed and went to the van down by the river. It just, it just made sense, um, to go to one meal a day. Um, but again, this is something, this was a progression. Like I said, when I was in my twenties, man, I was, I was pounding four meals a day. Um, so it's a, it's a progression that, that developed over 20 years, so yeah, you could, I would not recommend anybody out there who's in the normal American three meal a day paradigm trying to go to the five meals a week that I'm doing because you, yeah, you will fall off the wagon almost immediately. And conceivably, I don't know, I, I, I a man might actually, <laughs> he might actually hurt himself. I mean, don't do anything where you're at risk of passing out or fainting or anything like that. No way, man. No if, way. If you're not a computer programmer who sits on your backside for eight hours a day, you know, like maybe me, and, and <laughs> if you actually have a real outdoors job, you may need a lot of calories. If you're a farmer, mm-hmm. you need a lot of calories. Um, I assume. I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, yeah, I, assume, I assume farmers are, are actually still doing manual labor and not just sitting oh, yes. in a tractor all day. Oh, yeah. But, but yep. uh, what I was going to, the other thing I wanted to mention, though, is, is that, you know, based on your circumstances in life, if you're a mom and you're either pregnant or breastfeeding, you know, fasting oh, yeah. is actually contrary to what you should be doing. And that's exactly. why I brought up the other ideas of what fasting is really getting at. It's about moderating and controlling appetites. And mm-hmm. food is just one of them. I mean, information. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you're watching uh, a Netflix video while you do something or, or listening to the radio or listening to a podcast or reading uh, fiction or entertaining books, there are other appetites that you can 
moderate instead of food because it, well it, it, social it, media weren't we talking about <laughs> the, the whole science about um, people getting actual literal dopamine rushes from yes. engagement on Facebook and Twitter and crap. I mean, it's, it's insidious and they like admit to it now. That, they totally why, admit to it. That's why I was laughing about it because the, the, the whole science of, I forget what study it was, but it was with rats. And, and if you give them food at irregular intervals based on how many times they hit a switch, they get more addicted to just slamming that switch because they don't know when, when the, when the, 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 the appetite is going to be satisfied uh, when the payoff is coming, whereas it, the rats who got the the particle of food every five times they hit the switch or every eight times, it didn't even matter what the interval was. If it was a regular interval, they weren't addicted to it. And so the whole idea of I need to wait to see how long it's going to be before somebody likes my post. I mean, this this analogy yeah. used to be um, applied to email. Uh, that how many times do I have to hit the refresh button on my email before mm-hmm. I see or before I get new email? That dates me by about fifteen years, I think. But the whole idea now with, with like Twitter replies or Facebook replies, I mean, social media causes psychosis. I, I, I'm, I'm yeah. convinced of this at this point. Um, well, even blogging, I was talking, I was corresponding via email with a fellow blogger and just kind of talking about this dynamic. And I, I brought this up and said, this is one of the reasons, it's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons that I don't have comments on my blog, never have and never will. Um Obviously, I don't want to have to, my audience is, you know, not 100% pious traditional Catholics, you know, so let's, let's leave it at that. The, the garbage that I have always received in my email box is just, some of it is just hair curling, you know, so I'm obviously never going to allow there to be any sort of form that I'm providing for people to post, you know, filth, absolute disgusting filth and I don't want to have to wade through that and and edit it that's not healthy either um so that's one reason but the other reason that I brought up to this this other person was it's also it's also on the other side I mean I get enough of this via email I don't want it on my blog and that is the people who send the emails and and God bless, God bless everyone who sends me kind, supportive emails. But you have to understand when you're in a position, um, even, you know, a fairly D-list blogger like I am, but I, you know, I do have an audience and you get these emails from these people saying, you're so great. You're so wonderful. You're so smart. That's the greatest. That last piece you wrote is the greatest thing I've ever read. I mean, and you get emails like that steadily you're all so the time. awesome you should run for congress yes you're so awesome you should run for congress um why aren't you married you're so wonderful i would marry you blah 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 and 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 again i'm not i'm not belittling anyone who sends very kind and flattering emails like that but you have to think of it from um from my position or the position of anyone who has a website to sit there and read that stuff and have it and then post it Post it on your own website and provide a forum for that so that everyone else can can appreciate, enjoy and luxuriate in all of this praise that I'm getting. That's that's very unhealthy and can be very dangerous, too. So, again, that's another reason why I don't have comments on my website and never will. It's both sides. I don't want to have the evil, horrific, hair-curling, nasty stuff, but I also don't want to have the "you're so great, you're so wonderful" because that's extremely unhealthy too. I get enough; it's enough of a 
an issue with me having that come into my email box. And, you know, I, I hope that I keep it, I hope that I keep it in check and, and don't let a lot of that stuff go to my head, but you know, it's there and it's a risk, but I'm certainly going to, and it is a dopamine. It's like the dopamine fix, you know, and I suppose that if, if you, that people who are bloggers who do allow comments looking for those comments and checking, Ooh, do I have any comments on my last post? That all feeds into that, that dopamine social media, um, dynamic. And I just, I don't want any part of that. You know, I'll, I'll write and I'll publish what I write and we'll obviously publish these podcasts and everything, but I'm, I have no interest in, um, in, in the whole comments culture. I, I just don't want to engage that at all. And it's, it's really strange that this is such a new phenomenon. There's never been any expectation up until just within the past, what, decade, decade and a half, that if someone is going to write in whatever format, that that person is then somehow expected to publish the comments of of the readership. I mean, can you imagine if you went to C.S. Lewis and said, you are morally obligated to publish all of the letters that you receive about, you know, the Narnia books or your apologetics books, you are morally obliged to publish people and, and provide this to the general public, all of the letters that people send you. Well, that's, that's ridiculous. Of course you aren't. Of course you aren't. Um, if, if other people have something worthwhile to say, even if it's in critique, and in fact, you wrote a critique of one of my pieces years ago. That's, <laughs> I, that's kind of how we got to, I think that's probably how we came into initial contact with each other. I don't I had, I've written so something about I, the SSPX and you wrote a rebuttal to it. You wrote a very good rebuttal to it. Well, I, um, I, I also wrote it in a way that I, I was trying to degrade the, the writing style so it, it wouldn't be obvious who was, who was writing it because I, I, mm-hmm. tend, I tend to write in a semi-unique style in terms of the, the phraseology. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm just weird that way, but, um, no, I, 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 I don't know if you ever read it because, um, I did. Yeah. Sure. I did. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fair, fair enough. Yeah, it was, it was very good. It was very intelligent and well-written and well thought out and that's great. But you know, the vast majority of stuff that comes in, um, is, is not like that. And so if someone has something good and worthwhile to write, they should, they, and now everybody basically has the ability to do this because these blogs are for all intents and purposes free, um, is that you can, you can self-publish and there are all these ways to self-publish. And if you have something worthwhile to say and you say it in a, in a concise, interesting, even amusing way and you say something intelligent, then you're probably going to generate an audience of whatever size it is. And that's great. And that's the way it should be. And, and to your point about people uh, emailing in or commenting or emailing because you don't allow the comments about the, you know, you're awesome and all the rest. Um, it reminds me of something that I heard a priest say once about uh, people who compliment uh, on, on sermons. And he said something to the effect, and it's not, it's not that he wasn't grateful to people who were positively affected by his sermons, but he said, I, I would prefer that rather than you tell me that you got something from it, pray for me. Because the mm-hmm. minute that I start believing that anything I said was due to some quality of myself and not the grace of God working through me is the minute I lose my soul. So, yeah. um, and, and I know people who, who write in and say and tell you that, that uh, what you wrote you really spoke to them and helped them. They're not trying to corrupt you. 
but no. realizing that that's a temptation. I mean, it, it's it's human vanity. We're all subject to it. I mean, yep. someone someone says that well, you're telling me that my, my my piece was good. Of course it was. I wrote it. I'm awesome. But um, no, <laughs> that, that's the temptation. And and um, um, so that when when, when Anne doesn't allow comments on it, it's not because she's. Well, okay. There's a lot of comments online. Get get out of hand real quick. And if you don't believe that, look at YouTube. Well, actually, don't look at YouTube. It's it's horrific. Ugh, but it's um, a cesspit. Absolutely. In fact, it's a, it's a shithole. It's a shithole. Yes. <laughs> a <laughs> How's more, that for a bringing more, it all back around? <laughs> a lot more so than Haiti and Ghana. I'll give it that. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yep. It's it. It doesn't serve any good purpose. Um and. Uh, yeah, I think I think we've talked that one to death. I, I, I have learned something interesting, though. You brought up the whole idea of um, masking masking your writing style and masking your voice because I have kind of the same problem too. Is my my written voice is very distinct. Um, people can pick out, oh, that sounds that Anne wrote that. That sounds like Anne wrote that. One of the things that you can do to mask your voice that I've figured out is that you know write something up as you would normally write it, and then go to Google Translate or what's the other one, Word Reference or any of the the good translation um, utilities that are online, copy, paste your 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 prose into a translation um, website and then translate it from how uh, you do whatever you want, man. You can go crazy, but try to use English a fairly... to Chinese to Thai to German to, to Italian to French and back to English. That, well, that, I was going to say, stick, stick, with, stick with the big languages, you know, so that it doesn't just butcher it. Because I think Chinese is really tough. But, you know, like French, um, French, Spanish, Italian, German, the, the online translation um, algorithms now for those are pretty darn good. But if you do, if you translate it to one and then go to another one and then go to another one and then go back to English, so you run it through like four different languages, what that will give you at the end when you've made the full circle is that it will have your prose with all style completely removed from it. Then you can go back through it and you can you can clean up the stuff that's just, you know, grammatically wrong. But it's it's all of your thoughts, all, all the main ideas are there, but all of your writing style is completely gone. So your voice is not recognizable. And there it is. So that's a little trick that if you ever need to do that, if you ever need to mask your own voice for whatever reason, and, you know, as events uh, continue to deteriorate, there might be people out there who, who are going to need to do things like this, who are going to need to write things, but mask their own voice in it and get information out that way for whatever reason. Um, that's a way to do it. Translate in, in a circle, like th a three-prong circle or a four-prong circle, and it'll take all of the all of the writing style out of whatever you write well I mean that there's there's the masking your voice and there's also keeping separate uh, silos of, of, of interest as well I think we've, we've talked about this too mm -hmm. I mean you know I'm in this context, I am super nerd, and I have, I think, nine or 11 uh, Twitter accounts. I forget how many exactly, but they're all very unique niche things. I'm not trying to be sneaky or anything. It's just that people who are interested in listening to what I'm saying on this podcast probably have no interest in what I have to say about amateur radio or photography or the other interests I have. And I really do have mm -hmm. about 11 different interests uh, when I have time for it. It's not like I'm active on all of those, but every once in a while I'll, I'll say something there. So, um, and, and the same thing on, on, I think I've got five or six Facebook accounts and I'm also never on any of them. But um, the, the point being that there's, there's the combination of, of masking what your voice sounds like. And there's also keeping your silos of interest separated. I mean, 
the people that I, I I know professionally as a computer programmer couldn't care less about what I have to say about audio engineering or photography for the most part. So, yeah, you know, it's yeah. just, you know, you know, you, you have separate interests um, and keep them separate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of the most annoying things I, I, I find, at least it, there's, there's a, one of my, one of my Twitter profiles that I follow, I follow it more than I post on it is uh, professional programmers. And the people that I, that really annoy me the most is the ones who just decide to post everything um, with their, their political views, what they have for dinner. It's like, no, I want to know mm-hmm. what you had to say about the latest update from Microsoft on this particular toolkit. I couldn't care less about anything else. So Exactly. It's you know, a point of consideration. I mean, are you thinking about the other people that you're interacting with? And then the, the N-word comes back around. Yes. This, <laughs> it is very narcissistic to think that the entire world gives a flying flip what you're eating for dinner tonight or any of this other stuff. Take and there's the entirety again, of who I am, take it or leave it. Okay, fine, I'll leave it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> So and there in, you go. In, in those professional contexts, I find that that uh, there are other people who will um, retweet the professional stuff that uh, say a Scott Hanselman uh, to, to drop one name. He's he's one of these people who who tweets under one identity and one identity only for everything he tweets about. And there's about five to ten percent about what he talks about that is professionally relevant to me. And you know, I just follow the people who retweet the stuff that's professionally relevant to me. That that works too. So yep, yep. Well, what do you think? You want to call this uh, an episode? Oh, come on. We're only one, one hour, 12 minutes in. Yeah. Oh, that's that's actually, I think, just about the ideal length. Just a little over an hour, I think. Oh, besides, we have we have other topics we've we've already teased. Um, at some point, we're going to talk about traditional Catholicism and the uh, Society of St. Pius X and um, yep. other things as well. And, and we have we have a Bitcoin or cryptocurrency snack pack coming up. We're going to do that, too. And, so. and a space alien incarnation topic. Space aliens, absolutely, always an interesting topic. Uh, there's, we have we have lists and lists and lists. <laughs> and if you have other ideas you want to sub- uh, submit for for um, podcast ideas, the email address is barnhart at podcast or blah. I said that backwards. That, that's backwards. <laughs> nope. <laughs> it's podcast at barnhart.biz. Well, you could probably there say barnhart at barnhart.biz, and Anne will get that, and I won't. Uh, masses for Anne's benefactors are Monday through Thursday every single week. Um, and then one requiem per week as well. Please join your intentions with the priests who offer these masses and please pray for the priests as well. Uh, the diabolic, diabolical narcissism page was updated. I think I said that last week. I didn't update my notes, but the DVD is still available. You can order that Matthew seventeen twenty initiative, uh, which was a big part of this uh, podcast as well. The fasting twice a week. And the whole point of that is for the resolution of the current issue of the papacy. We have two bishops in white. One of them is the Pope. There's some confusion. So um, abstain or or curtail your appetites and offer it up for that intention. Um, anything else you wanted to bring up? Uh, prayer requests or, oh, yeah, um, I've got a special request, prayer request. I don't want to give details on it, but if you can pray for a special intention of mine, I would greatly, greatly appreciate that. Um, anything else uh, you want to mention, Anne, until next time? Um, just undying gratitude, as always, and... Um Hoping everyone has a has a lovely week, and we will we will see you. What do you think? Maybe next Tuesday, something like that. Sometime uh, no, in you know what? No, we always future. we always do this. We always do this. We paint ourselves into these corners, and then it all goes kerflooey. So no, we, we will. This might be the last podcast ever. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, I don't maybe know. <laughs> next month. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see you when we see you. Yeah, when we when. <laughs> 
when it, whenever we get the internet connection back, because the asteroid has to hit soon, right? Man, it's I when I talked about um, was it the last episode or two episodes ago where kind of alcohol is being removed from my life because at the feast of Saint John, as as my old Protestant friends in my old stomping ground in the Bible Belt would say, the Holy Spirit put it on my heart that you have to be ready to go. 24-7, what happens if our Lord returns in glory or there's there's any sort of supernatural intervention? And looking at current events, it's really, really difficult to make the argument that one should not be um, at least conceding the possibility that such supernatural intervention is uh, highly potentially probable at any time. Be ready, and it's it's actually the scripture is very easy to remember for for all of us trad Catholics because it's one Peter five, as in you know the website one Peter five, and in fact it's one Peter five. I think it's verse eight where our Lord says, and He says it as a command. He says, "Be sober and watch." And that's no joke, man. Can yeah, you imagine? For the devil, this, your adversary wants to cons- wants to uh, is prowling is throughout prowling the world like, like a, a lion. lion seeking souls that he may devour. And and the more and, devout people, if you if you uh, read the the divine office daily, that's I believe it's in Compline every single night. So it's a daily reminder. Yes, it is. It's in Compline. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. And of course, if you if you have a lot of small children, especially a lot of boys, you tend to be sober anyway a lot of the time, just in case you have to take them to the hospital. I mean, that, <laughs> yeah, that's a bad right. look. You have to call 911. I can't drive right now. Come get my kid. So. <laughs> Your, your I'm, version I'm of it. I'm just terrified of having St. Peter and Paul appear in the sky with flaming swords ready to take care of business. And, you know, I'm like, oh, can you give me can you give me three hours? I need to take a nap. And, and you know, I mean, that's that's not acceptable. You say flaming you swords, go. but I, I've got to make my mandatory Star Wars reference. Um, it, it's actually lightsabers. There's there's the reference that that um, or we, we know from scripture study that that the the evangelists and, and the scripture writers they interpret things and, and they write things based on their understanding. So St. Luke being a, a uh, medical doctor wrote in mm-hmm. far more detail about the passion than uh, the other evangelists. And mm-hmm. St. Paul being the, being essentially a doctor of letters. Uh, this is what the scribes and the Pharisees were. He wrote in, in very deep historical detail about the significance of, of, of the redemption to the, to the Jewish people, as well as in, in very florid detail to the, to the Gentiles as well. So you think about Moses who had the speech impediment, uh, the, the, the movie 10 commandments, they, they have Charlton Heston playing, um, playing Moses. Uh, the, the, if you read the Bible correctly, it's Moses had the, the, the phrase is uncircumcised tongue. And so he had a speech impediment. Sling yeah. blade would have been a more accurate uh, representation of, of what, how Moses spoke. Aaron mm-hmm. would, would have been um, Charlton Heston. But the, but the point being that Moses writing the first five books of the Bible, you know, he, he was somewhat educated because um, he grew up in the Pharaoh's household. But what do they, what do they know about high technology? Um, the angel with the flaming sword guard, guarding the uh, the Garden of Eden. You know, what does he know? Fire, lightsaber. I mean, it's in the Bible. So George <laughs> Lucas was stealing from, there was some truth in what he was doing, but it, he was stretching it. <laughs> All right. I'm going to let you get away with that. Now, I think we're, we've pretty much now obliged ourselves to make the next episode at least address the, the space alien question. So... I, I've been I've been wanting to slip that in at some point uh, in, in uh, 42 episodes in, you know, finally we get to address the, the meaning finally, of life, the universe finally, and everything yeah. and lightsabers. So <laughs> there you go. All right. Until next time, it. I am Super Nerd. 
And I am Anne. Thanks, guys, and God bless.